You are listening to the Summit Church Garden City Podcast. Our vision is to treasure Christ above all else and live for more. Good morning, Summit Church, and hello. I'm so excited to be with you all this morning. It's a privilege to be introducing our new sermon series going through the book of Malachi verse by verse. I'm actually, you know, to be honest, surprised to find myself back here uh, because I thought my sermon, uh, Introducing Truth Over Trend, would offend others to the point where I'd be kicked out of the church, but (laughs) here I am. So if I didn't offend you with that one, don't worry, I get another chance today to offend some, okay? Now, my goal is not to be offensive, but the reality is that we live in the last days, and Jesus warned that many would be offended at the preaching of the cross. You may be asking yourself, how could this little book of Malachi, which is um, just a few chapters neglected, be offensive? Well, just wait and see. Throughout this series, we will be exploring such topics as learn to love, or in my introduction, God's love. Raz will be covering learn to honor, Lucas with learn to listen, and Pastor Ovi to end the series with learn to persevere, give, and repent. I can confidently say that you are in for a treat with this little book of Malachi. Before we dive into the introduction and text, I would like to start with a word of prayer. Okay, so if you could bow your heads. Heavenly Father, we are so grateful that you have known us before the foundation of the world and have saved us by your amazing grace. Lord, I pray that you would allow me this morning to use your word to grow us in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. I am resting on your promise that your word does not return to you void, but will accomplish your work. I pray you would convict us at times, teach us and encourage us with a text from the little book of Malachi. I thank you for remaining faithful even when we are faithless. May your peace be upon us this morning even through uncertain times. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. To help you find where the book of Malachi is, really simple, just turn to Matthew and go one book back. So it's the last, as Ovi mentioned, the last uh, book of the Old Testament. We find ourselves approximately 400 years before the birth of Christ. Many scholars believe this book was written around the time of Nehemiah. And if you remember, Nehemiah was... um, one of the king's cupbearers, he was uh, commissioned to rebuild uh, the walls and to rebuild uh, Jerusalem. Um, The major theme in view of this book is formalism rebuked. Uh, That is to say, uh, going through a formal ritual without the heart being there. Um, Now, if you remember, Israel was in Babylonian captivity for 70 years as a penalty under the law for breaking the law and turning to idols. God was faithful not only to the good promises uh, for keeping the law, but the penalties for breaking the law. Now, a quick observation. Uh, Is anyone familiar with the uh, Name It and Claim It and Prosperity gospel movement? Um, These false teachers often go to the Old Testament and they take the promises given to Israel out of context and apply it to themselves. And I find it kind of, kind of funny how they take all the good things and they ignore all the curses, right? But if you go to Deuteronomy 28, there are abundant curses for breaking the law. We are not promised our best life now, 
but an eternal inheritance. Um, and uh, just keep that in mind because we're going to go back to that. Okay? God is faithful to Israel, and they are brought out of captivity through much opposition, and they begin to rebuild the walls under Ezra and Nehemiah. You would expect that Israel would be rejoicing to see their homeland. But in fact, only 10% of Israel actually goes back and undergoes the rebuilding process. Um, they get to leave Babylon, and many of them stay back in ba Babylon. We see here that God preserves a, a remnant of faithful Jews. Um, <clears throat> now, about the writer himself. Not much is known about him, but the name Malachi means my messenger or messenger of Jehovah. The Septuagint, which is the Greek translation of the Old Testament, gives its meaning as angel or angelos. Now, angel is a messenger that is either human or spiritual. In fact, another example of this could be found in Revelation chapter 2 and 3, where Jesus uh, sends out seven letters to seven churches, and he refers to them as write to the angel of the church of Ephesus or the angel of the church of Sardis, and that is the pastor. So after this service, we will no longer address Ovi as pastor, but angel. <laughs> I like that, since pastors are called all sorts of negative names today, angel seems to kind of balance the scales of negativity. Of course, I'm just joking. Um, don't call pastor an angel. I wouldn't want visitors to think they've come into some kind of weird cult. That's just, <laughs> that's not us. Okay. Lastly, there's a balance between the messenger and the message. We need to know that the messenger himself is trustworthy. After we know he's trustworthy, we can then begin to examine the message. And that's exactly what we're going to do. Even though we don't know much about Malachi's personal life, we know that the message and the prophecies that were given by Malachi uh, in predicting the arrival of John the Baptist literally came true 400 years later. Imagine that Malachi is like a radio announcer giving a message and ending with, the next voice you will hear is from John the Baptist. 400 years is a long time to wait for the next voice. To put it into context, America is 245 years old. So that's almost double the time that America has been around. So I remember uh, this morning when uh, Pastor Ovi came up, he said, guys, forget about your lunch plans for a moment and let's focus on church. Now I'm telling you to remember your lunch plans for a second. How many of you are looking forward to lunch? Okay, a few people. How many of you ate breakfast? How many of you are regretting that you forgot to eat breakfast? Okay. <laughs> well, to help us out, I've arranged the verses we, we will be looking at as a three-course meal. Um, we will start with the appetizer in verse 1, the main course in verses 2 to 3, and lastly, dessert, verses 3 to 5. Of course, we will have to take a few sips of water in between with some application. Now let's get our minds off of lunch and into some spiritual food because man cannot live by bread alone. Amen. Let's open the word to Malachi 1.1. 1, 1. Um, if not open, then open your phones. Um, and I'll begin to read. The burden of the word of the Lord to Israel by Malachi. We'll stop here for a moment to consider this burden. It seems simple enough right? Share some word of encouragement or warning from God, yet the reality was far different and often came with danger. If you don't believe me, try it today. Go out into the streets and yell, 
God's judgment is coming, or the end is near. Uh, needless to say, you won't have a big crowd cheering you on. You'll probably have them booing you. People are not much different than they were 2,400 years ago. Uh, they want to have good news of wealth and security, not repentance and doom. In fact, Jesus even called out the religious leaders of their time for beating and killing the prophets that were sent to them. By now, you're probably thinking, so what? Well, let me ask you, do you have a message from the Lord? Remember Jesus said in Matthew 11:28 to 30, Come to me, all you who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. You might be asking, what is this light burden? Well, if you recall, as believers, we are called priests, a royal priesthood by Peter. Um, a priest is one that intercedes to God on behalf of a nation or persons. Um, but on top of that, believers are also, they act as a prophet. A prophet took a word from God to the people. The burden of the believer is the gospel of Jesus Christ. I think it's such a beautiful thing to gather with believers on Sunday and remind one another and encourage ourselves in the gospel of our salvation. After we get our spiritual batteries charged, we can then go out and share the gospel with non-believers. You may be surprised to hear this, but did you know that most church-going, professing Christians cannot articulate the gospel? Now, don't misunderstand me. I'm not questioning their salvation, but they don't know how to share their faith with others. This is a scary reality, and it ought not be so among us. We live in the most technologically advanced age with information at our fingertips. There are no excuses. On top of that, there are many heresies out there and pseudo-gospels, false gospels. So how can we avoid falling for deceptions and have our witness um, to a, a greater degree? Well, let's start by learning to articulate the gospel of our salvation, our burden, as it were. I'll start by citing 1 Corinthians 15, verses 1 to 4. Moreover, brethren, I declare to you the gospel which I preached to you, which also you received, and which you stand, by which you also are saved, if you hold fast that word which I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. For I delivered to you, first of all, which I also received, that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures, that he was buried, and he rose again the third day according to scriptures. Believing in the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ is the message of the gospel. Salvation is not determined by our performance, but by his performance. Praise God. God became a man in the flesh and dwelt among us. He lived a perfect, sinless life that we could never achieve solving our need for righteousness. Then he took the curses and penalty for our sin, although he was without sin. He became a mercy seat or a propitiation for all those who would put their trust in him. Now, are you familiar with the theological term? It's called the great exchange. Okay? It simply means that the Father treated Christ as the most wretched sinner so that he could treat us as Christ. I'll make it more plain. Jesus was stripped completely naked and so he could put a robe of righteousness on the believer so the shame of our nakedness would not appear before our Father. 
Jesus had a crown of thorns driven through his forehead so that he could place a crown of glory on your head. Jesus became a sponge to soak up the Father's wrath so that it could be said of you, there is now no condemnation for those that are in Christ Jesus. Amen. What a beautiful burden we have. Let us bear this burden for his name's sake as he bore a cross for our redemption. I remember last week's sermon by Lucas on rest, and I can't help but feel rest for my soul and rest from laboring to achieve my own righteousness. I rest in the fact that I have peace with the Father by a sacrifice greater than all the cattle on all the hills. I rest on the finished work and blood of Jesus that was shed for me. Are you a great sinner? Christ is an even greater Savior. So much more can be said, but let's move on to the main course in the next two verses of Malachi. So before we start the main course, I'd like to highlight some of the themes we will be covering in this sermon. They include mercy, grace, free will, and election. You might have gone ahead and read the next two verses and are scratching your head thinking, how on earth is he getting all of that from two verses? Well, let's treat it as a meal and take it one bite at a time, okay? Malachi 1, verse 2. I have loved you, says the Lord. Yet you say, in what way have you loved us? And I'll stop right there. Let's stop there and observe the style of writing, which is known as a dialectic, which later became very popular in Judaism. Um, This style... um, in, in the second verse, shows a dialogue between God and his people. The Lord makes a statement, I have loved you. This is remarkable because God waits a very long time before he tells anyone that he loves them. The best that could be said about David or Moses was that they were the servant of the Lord. Now, you would expect the nation of Israel to acknowledge his love, but instead they ask, how exactly have you loved us? They want to know the specific way God loved Israel. I must pause here and ask, is this fair? Okay, good, good answer, Priscilla. The answer is absolutely not. God had chosen the nation, the nation of Israel out of all the families of the earth. He swore a covenant to them, and although they were unfaithful to their covenant, God remained faithful. He, and just to kind of give you some examples, He walked with them through the wilderness, provided food and water for millions of people. As they marched 40 years, gave them the land of the Canaanites, gave them the houses of the Canaanites that they did not build, the vineyards which they did not plant, okay? They made them the most, God made them the most prosperous nation, preserved them through captivity, and even brought them back into their own land. God was faithful to his promises, yet they ask, in what way have you loved us? Isn't their history evidence enough of God's love? Yes, they served a gracious God, and yet they turned to idols, prostitution, child sacrifice, political corruption, to name a few. And if you join us in D groups, we're going through the book of Hosea, and God just highlights what they're doing and makes it very plain, calls out their sin. This statement would be more fitting if it was reversed, if you think about it. Where, where, God would st- where the nation of Israel would start off by stating, I have loved you, and God would say, how have you loved me? 
that would be more fitting for this. So it's completely ironic. Now, do we ever ask God, in what way do you love us? I know whole denominations of Christians that believe God's love and mercy is on the basis of moral performance. Now, it is true that after we are saved, we undergo a process of sanctification in which we progressively kill sin and crucify the flesh. But we will not be sinless until the final step of glorification. If God's love towards us was on the basis of perfection, who could be saved? We see the example of Israel. Although they had failed time and time again, God remained faithful to his promises and did not give up Israel. There's an old saying that says, if God is through with the Jew, then God might be through with you. But we know that's not true. The Bible says God is rich in mercy. But what is mercy? We hear that often. Mercy is defined as compassion or forgiveness shown towards someone whom it is within one's power to punish or harm. To put it another way, imagine a criminal who deserves the electric chair, but he gets released. He did not get what he deserved, and mercy was extended. Before I go on to the next part of the verse, I'd like to have you consider Titus 3.5, which reads, Not by works of righteousness which we have done, but according to his mercy he saved us, through the washing of regeneration and renewing of the Holy Spirit. Amen. If you ever find yourself not knowing what to pray for, remember to thank God for being rich in mercy. If he wasn't, I might be in danger. And not might be, but I would be in danger. But I can rest knowing he has plenty for me, and he has plenty for you, by the way. He is rich in mercy. Let's pick up where we left off, friends. Malachi 1, verses 2 to 3, or the second part of 2. Was not Esau Jacob's brother, says the Lord? Yet Jacob I have loved, but Esau I have hated. I heard a story about a seminary student uh, who told his professor, I have a problem with this passage because it says God hates Esau. And the professor responded, he said, I have a problem with this passage too. My problem is, why does it say God loved Jacob? This scripture is very controversial indeed. But let's examine it together as a church and do some exploring in God's word. First, let's deal with the fact that it says God hates and the object of his hate is Esau. We read in 1 John 4.8 and 1 John 4.16 that God is love. Does that mean God cannot hate? Well, I'll give you a simple comparison. If I say I love children, I must hate pedophiles. If I love righteousness, I must hate wickedness. The opposites do not go together. In fact, if we read that God hates sin and sin cannot be in the presence of a holy God, Proverbs 6 lists seven things that God hates and God is righteous in doing so. Next, let's notice that the object of God's hatred is not Esau's sin. It does not say, Esau's sin have I hated. We've all heard that Christian cliche, love the sinner, hate the sin. But at least in this passage, we cannot separate the two. The sin is bound or attached to the sinner. 
most unbelievers only know or care to know about two verses. This is the unbeliever's Bible. The first is judge not, and the other is God is love. They twist these scriptures to create a God that is passive and winks at sin and is more of a grandfather that forgives you for whatever you do and his main thing is do whatever you please. This is uh, actually idolatry. You created a God in whatever image you wanted. And if we are to present God in his truest form, we must present him as holy. In fact, one preacher put it, the train of God's love runs on the tracks of his holiness. That train cannot move off the tracks of holiness, his love. We must also remember that God's hatred is rooted in his attributes of righteousness, justice, and holiness, while our hatred is rooted in pride, jealousy, or some other form of sin. In this short statement, Jacob I loved, Esau I hated, we can lift the veil, as it were, to the complexity of our Creator. And that's what I'm going to be trying to do today. We're going to see different perspectives. We're going to take a look at the, our perspective of what we see down here and in these short passages and the corresponding New Testament commentaries, we can look at the complexity of God's perspective. So it's, you're in for a treat, I hope. Let's examine first the persons Jacob and Esau and their actions. If you recall, their story takes place from Genesis 25 to about 33. So for any extra homework, it's a great um, history that they have. Jacob and Esau were brothers, twin brothers. And as one preacher referred to them, they were called womb mates. Okay. We see them as an example of God's divine election, where God chooses one and passes over the other. But before we get to God's perspective, let's consider what they did and their relationship one to another. So this is their own actions, our perspective down here. First, let's consider that Esau was athletic, handsome, a man of the field. He was kind of like that all-American football player boy. Okay? He's a symbol in Scripture of the flesh, and his name highlights the flesh because his name literally means hairy, speaking about his flesh. Jacob, on the other hand, means heel grabber or deceiver. He, Jacob is a picture or a symbol in Scripture of the Spirit, a man who struggles but has a relationship with God and is offered grace from God. Now, the best commentary on Scripture is Scripture. So let's consider what is said about Esau in Hebrews 12, 16 to 17. And I'll start. Lest there be any fornicator or profane person like Esau, who for a morsel of food sold his birthright. For you know that afterwards, when he wanted to inherit the blessing, he was rejected, for he found no place for repentance, though he sought it diligently with tears. The selling of the birthright is the climax of the brother's relationship, and it was forever memorialized in Scripture. You see, the birthright came with an earthly blessing and a spiritual blessing. The spiritual blessing was a relationship with God and being in the line of the Messiah, or the seed promise given to Adam and Eve in Genesis 3.15, if you, if you recall, um, which paraphrasing goes, 
the seed of the woman will one day crush the head of the serpent, or the Proto-Evangelium, the first gospel. Esau, being an unbeliever, did not care about the spiritual, and he despised his birthright. To illustrate this, I'd like to ask, what would you easily trade, or what do you put very little value on? Would you say uh, your socks? To be honest, uh, to be honest with you, I know plenty of people that put so much value on their socks that they cannot throw away a pair of socks with holes in them. Uh, that's me, by the way. <laughs> well, to Esau, an eternal promise from the Creator was more worthless than some of our dirty socks. He despised the spiritual just like unbelievers still do today. You tell an unbeliever that there is a spiritual inheritance and they pass it by. It's worthless. As believers, we have the promise of an eternal inheritance and we lose our lives, as it were, in this life for a greater inheritance in the next one. Remember, Jesus said, if you lose your life for my name and the sake of the gospel, you will keep it for everlasting life. We should all be willing to lose our lives in this world because we rest on God's eternal promises. A few nights ago, after D-groups, my wife and I were talking about these two men, and she asked me, do you think Jacob was worse than Esau? Well, I was reminded of the passage in Hebrews 11, 6 which goes, But without faith, it is impossible to please him. For he who comes to God must believe that he is and that he is a rewarder of those who diligently seek him. The truth is, Jacob is just as bad as Esau. The difference is that Jacob believed in the eternal inheritance of the birthright while Esau did not. Now that we've examined briefly the brother's actions, I must ask the question, does God love Jacob and hate Esau on the basis of their actions? Once again, for the answer to this question, we must let Scripture interpret Scripture. We see a commentary by the Apostle Paul in Romans 9, 11 to 16. So this is where we change the perspective from the earthly, Esau and Jacob, to the heavenly, where we look at God's perspective. And it reads, For the children... Not yet being born, nor having done any good or evil, that the purpose of God, according to election, might stand, not of works, but of him who calls, it was said to her, the older shall serve the younger. As it is written, Jacob I have loved, and, but Esau I have hated. What shall we say then? Is there unrighteousness with God? Certainly not. For he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whomever I will have mercy, and I will have compassion on whomever I have compassion. So then it is not of him who wills, nor of him who runs, but of God who shows mercy. Paul uses this passage in Malachi to teach the early church about the doctrine of election. The fact that God's love is an electing love is devastating to human pride. The first objection one may raise is, and fill in the, fill in the blank, that's not fair. Thank you, Jessica. We live in a society that holds equality and fairness as the highest virtue. And these thoughts have permeated the church. We think that God's, we, we think that because God extends mercy to Jacob, 
he must extend the same mercy to Esau. Paul answers this objection in verse 14. Is there unrighteousness in God? Certainly not, or in some translations, God forbid. You see, when we demand mercy, you can be sure we are no longer thinking about mercy. And I have a little illustration to go with it. There was a seminary professor, um, R.C. Sproul, and uh, he had a midterm paper. And the midterm paper was due. There was about five students, and they came to him and they said, with tears in their eyes, they said, Prof. Sproul, our paper's not done. Please, please give us one more day, one more day. And he reluctantly said, okay, I'll give you one more day. He turned it in, and they got a grade. For the final term, it wasn't five students, but the same five students plus an additional 20 students now come up, and the professor goes around, where's your paper? And one of them says, hey, props, bro, how you doing, buddy? He's like, I don't have it. Nonchalantly, just whatever, chilling. And he said, oh, you don't have it? Okay, zero. And he said, wait a second, that's not fair. And he said, oh, if it's fairness you want, then fairness you will have. And he goes back to the first term paper and he puts a zero right there. So be careful when you, when you demand mercy. So the idea is, the first time mercy was extended, it's not, how shall I put it, it's not required that the professor should give the mercy. What's required, what's just for the professor to do is just give him a zero. But instead he extends mercy. And then after mercy is extended, you see how the students then begin to just take it for granted. The next time they come around, they not only expect mercy, they demand it. That's the mistake they made. Mercy, in essence, is undeserved and unmerited. The Creator is under no moral obligation to show mercy. Therefore, Jacob receives mercy and Esau receives justice, but neither receive injustice. I hope you will never say to a merciful God, you are not merciful enough. That's blasphemy, and it, and it implies that there is sin in God. The next observation is, is this idea found in verse 16. It is not of him who wills, nor of him who runs. I want to make a brief examination of our free will. The world holds to a view, excuse me, in what is called a humanist view of free will, defined as making choices spontaneously and indifferent to any predisposition or inclination. However, there's two problems with this view, a moral and a rational problem. The moral problem is, if your choices are made without any prior disposition, then we are saying there's no reason for that choice. It happens out of nothing, spontaneously, if you will. If this is true, how can such an action have any moral significance? One, one of the things that God is concerned about is not only the choice, but the intent behind the choice. An example of this 
is found in the story of Joseph, where Joseph gets sold into slavery. And after many years of, of being into, sold into slavery and becoming the second in command, he sees his brothers and he tells his brothers, you meant it for evil, but God meant it for good. So we see here the intent. The other problem is a rational problem. How can someone make a choice without any predisposition? And I'll give you an example. Uh, the example is, if you guys recall, the story of Alice in Wonderland, where Alice begins her journey, and she sees the Cheshire cat in the tree smiling, and, and she sees two paths she could take, the left or the right. And she tells the Cheshire cat, which path should I take? And the Cheshire cat responds, it depends. Where are you going? And Alice replies, I don't know. And so the Cheshire cat says, well, I guess it doesn't matter. So we see here this idea that you are left paralyzed without any intent. That's why it cannot be spontaneous. If her will were utterly neutral, then she would be paralyzed, and which is the old problem of a rabbit out of a hat without the hat and without the magician, an effect without a cause. The Bible teaches that the fall has taken away not, not our choice, but our choice for righteousness. We are dead in sins and trespasses before the moment of our conversion. Just tell a non-believer to be righteous. They cannot measure up to the righteousness because there is some inclination for unrighteousness in them. Jonathan Edwards had a law, and he said that free moral agents always act according to the strongest inclination that they have at the moment of choice. If you were to ask a believer if they want to be free from sin, they would say yes. So why do believers sin? Believers sin because as temptation intensifies, the desire for that temptation exceeds the desire to serve Christ until they finally give in to their inclination and do it willingly. So if my, the opposite is true, if my desire to serve Christ in the moment is stronger than my desire and inclination for that sin, what happens? I do not sin. A non-believer sins because they want to sin. There is an inclination of sin because they find pleasure in it. Therefore, we cannot lay a charge that God predestined Esau for damnation and Jacob for salvation. God did not force, I'm going to remind you, God did not force Esau's hand or create evil in his heart. The evil came from Esau, and selling the birthright was his choice. Remember, he was a fleshly man who would rather satisfy his flesh for a moment than to have an eternal inheritance from God. God extended to Jacob his grace while leaving Esau to himself. What can we learn from this? In this illustration of Jacob and Esau, we see the veil removed as to how God deals with sinful man. It shows us the need for grace. If mercy is not getting what we deserve, then grace is getting what we do not deserve. For example, if I release a prisoner out of jail, that's mercy. If I give to the same prisoner a million dollars, that's grace. God has demonstrated his grace toward us in that while we are yet sinners, Christ died for us. An easy way to remember grace is to remember 
God's riches at Christ's expense. He is still in the business of extending grace to sinners through Christ. This leaves us with a small hole in the presentation of election and free will. You may be asking, if it's not on the basis of works or the will, how does God elect people for grace? The Apostle Paul writes in Ephesians 1, verses 3 to 5, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessings in the heavenly places in Christ, just as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and without blame before him in love, having predestined us to adoption as sons by Jesus Christ to himself according to the good pleasure of his will. Amen. Did you catch that? It's not because of something in us, but something in God. I don't know about you, but I'm glad it rests on God to extend grace. Because if it were up to me and my performance, or Israel and its performance, then God would have been done with us long ago. One person stated, uh, some, another seminary professor stated, I do not believe in election because I don't believe God takes a person to heaven, kicking and screaming that doesn't want to be there, and passes over someone that does. This is an entirely wrong view. I, everyone that wants God will have him. The rest are said to be enemies of God through wicked works, and it is said of fallen man, they love the darkness rather than the light. God leaves them to their own fallen disposition. What does that mean for us? Well, although we have taken a bird's eye view at election, we do not fly above the clouds, and we don't conclude, well, I guess those that will be saved will be saved. We live down here where the rubber meets the road. And we are commanded by Christ and compassion for the lost to tell them of the peril of sin and the reality of salvation. It will be God's business to sovereignly open their eyes. We rest on knowing that our Father is seated on the throne, there is no unrighteousness in God, and He is in control. It was Charles Spurgeon that said, and I'm paraphrasing here, if God put a yellow streak on the elect's back, I would only pre preach to the elect. But God simply didn't do that, so I preached to everyone. No one can charge God, on the other hand, because the gospel of our salvation is not hidden. It's not as if God gave it to a secret society and, or to a hidden group. The crucifixion of Christ was public. He was displayed for all to see, and in some versions it said he was like a placard or a billboard. Um, this billboard, by the way, separates B.C. from A.D. He splits history. No one will stand before God and tell him they didn't know or God is not fair. But if God were fair, they should have all gotten justice and not mercy. Yet he has provided a way in Christ Jesus. We are reaching the end of the meal now. I conclude by asking the question, what does the future hold for Jacob and Esau? Well, we go back to Malachi 1, and we see that God is still with Israel and has kept his covenant to preserve them. This is in stark contrast to Esau uh, and his future. So I'll read Malachi 1, 3 through 5, uh, the latter portion of 3. And laid waste to his mountains and his heritage for the jackals of the wilderness, even though Edom has said, We have been impoverished, but we will return and build the desolate places. Thus says the Lord of hosts, They may build, but I will throw down. They shall be called the territory of wickedness and the people against whom the Lord will have indignation forever. 
The Lord is magnified beyond the borders of Israel. We see even today through hindsight in history that God has been true to his promise. It's no secret that Israel is back in the land after 1,900 years. They are back on the world stage, but what about the nation of Esau, which is called Edom? Well, it just doesn't exist today. There are no longer any Edomites around. God has literally dealt with them as he promised, and we cannot judge the judgments of God. We simply do not have that perspective. What about this saying, indignation forever? Uh, I'll leave you with this. Remember when I mentioned Esau represents the flesh? Well, God is currently at war with the flesh and will one day have full victory. As Christians, we are told to crucify the flesh and the lusts of the flesh. We eagerly await the day of redemption when we will be given a new glorified body, free from the inclination to sin and having full liberty to love Christ and enjoy him forever. Truly, as it is written, the Lord is magnified beyond the border of Israel. Amen. Thanks for tuning in to the Summit Church Garden City podcast. We hope this teaching has encouraged you and helps you live for more.